0: Welcome to episode 150, Undoing the Intake Model, Improving the First Sessions in Psychotherapy, featuring Dr. Daryl Chow, psychologist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Erias, and I am just so delighted and honored today to be joined by Dr. Daryl Chow. Uh, I have had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Chow alongside uh, Dr. Scott Miller a couple of years ago about feedback informed treatment. And I asked Dr. Chow to come back today to talk about his specialization, which is really the initial assessment session and focusing on rapport. And I'm I'm just I'm excited to have this conversation, uh, Daryl. Before I say any more, why don't you take a minute and tell us about yourself and how you came to have this specialization? Then we will dive into the assessment session. Yeah, I don't
1: know about specialization, but it's just uh, one of those things that bothered me enough to sit down to. Put this down on the metaphorical ink to paper. But yeah, my name is Daryl Chow. I'm originally from Singapore, currently living in Western Australia. And uh, I'm a clinician, a teacher, and a part-time, sometimes independent researcher. Um, that's what I do. And um, yeah, hope you hope you can get some things out about first sessions for today.
0: So your background and how I know you is through your work with um, the International Center for Clinical Excellence and Feedback-Informed Treatment. And I know today's conversation will really pull upon that. Um, For our listeners, before Dr. Chow and I started recording, we were talking about what we wanted to accomplish in having this conversation. And I'm also trained in feedback-informed treatment, and I'm a a trainer myself. And one thing that I see is in that first assessment session, we naturally as clinicians have nerves about how we're going to show up in session with that person. And then there are just so many things that we need to do so many forms, you know, what, what button is a person going to hit when they arrive to let us know that they've arrived, I mean, all of these little things that are done, and and we get away from, we can lose sight of, the foundation of why we're there, which is a healing relationship. And what I really appreciate about Dr. Chow's work, not only in research, but also in practical application of how we have that initial assessment session or those first few sessions to really uh, create the frame of healing. Um, So Daryl, Tell me about your background with Fit and how you got into feedback informed treatment, and then let's go into this first few sessions. Sounds business.
1: good. Well, uh, I'm probably the last person to who would be interested in any kind of psychological tool of measurement of outcome. I come from Singapore, where a country that prides everything about performance beyond the bedroom, and we we have a lot of emphasis right from very young age in in schooling, in academia. So, you know, I, I didn't fit well in that system. I didn't like anything about the way traditional um, education was like in, in Singapore. I flopped very badly. I did very badly in school, um, all the way from primary school to high school, and even in a little bit of tertiary until... Uh, I got short circuited because I had to enlist into the army for for every male in Singapore. We do have to serve for two and a half years in my time. Now it's two years. And then it was only after where I took learning and education to my own hands, where where things start to um, go on a different direction. So anyway, it it all started because when I was in uni, um, I came across a... Two two really important books. One was um, Escape from Babel, and the other one was uh, Psychotherapy with Impossible Cases. So I I'm uh, an undergrad. I'm in University of South Queensland at that time, and then I was in the library. I was just browsing through, and I thought this is really interesting what what they're saying, and. Long story short, and and when things started to develop, there was also a listserv at that time. I connected with people all over the world. And and when I went back to Singapore, my friend Shannon gave me a book. She said, you got to read this, you know, um, and I said, "What is that?" And she she passed it to me. Um, it was uh, just released a book called "The Heroic Klein," um, and and I read it through, and it it really sort of challenged the status quo of how things were going. And one of the things that they suggested was that instead of just relying on evidence out there, is you need to figure out your own evidence. Figure out. Uh, how effective you are, one client at a time, you know, and 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 measure the outcomes and alliance. And I was hooked. i I, I just thought, okay, I want to figure this stuff out. Th- this was probably two thousand and four, two thousand and five. I just began working as a psychologist. I, I was working as a youth worker at first. And then when I worked in a in a hospital setting, I just thought, let's just just keep going at this and try this. And uh, there was no turning back since then um I cannot find another way that uh, I rather I cannot find a way without measuring uh, how things are going in terms of the client's well-being and the engagement uh, as as you know Beth so um, that's been the staple so far.
0: For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with feedback-informed treatment, you've probably heard of it and didn't know what it was. FIT is really the foundation of that statement. You've heard someone at some point say, a supervisor say, that it's really the relationship that matters. Feedback-informed treatment is really the model that... Uh, was born out of that research. And this idea that if we're delivering care that is maximally responsive to the client, our outcomes get better. And so what does that mean for us as clinicians in terms of how we become more responsive and more flexible to the needs of the client, which is a huge break from the early days of psychology and psychotherapy, where it was therapist or clinician as expert. Um, and client is non-expert. It's flipping that on its head. And it's something that Daryl and I are both um, passionate nerds about. (laughs) So if you are interested, I encourage you to look at some of our past episodes. Like I said, the interview with Daryl and Dr. Scott Miller, and also another one with uh, Dr. Scott Miller by himself talking about feedback-informed treatment. And for the purpose of today, we're going to be talking specifically about those first few sessions of psychotherapy and what we as clinicians need to be doing better or differently in how we deliver care. Um, There's so much here that we could talk about My first exposure to Daryl was through Dr. Scott Miller, but also through his book, First Kiss. Daryl, why don't you kind of sum up that book and some of the research about what really comes into play with the first few sessions and why it's so critical that we as clinicians do a good job during those first few sessions?
1: Yeah. Well, first and foremost, The First Mm -hmm. Kiss is uh, not a romance novel, as it sounds like one, but... (laughs) It's really about um, how we need to do two things. One, we need to undo the way that we are trained to do a clinical thorough assessment and to re-engage with something that's more fundamental, uh, human connection, right from the beginning. So, its central idea revolves around uh, this piece. And why 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 this is so important, you know, Many outcome studies that we see today uh, uh, based on data that's existing. But the thing is, if you look at the raw data sets for, for a lot of publications, uh, there's always an omission. An omission where it's about people who only come for one visit. And for whatever rhyme or reason, they 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 stop coming. The rates can range from 20 to 30 percent. Meaning, if you have seen 10 persons, there is a likelihood that about two or three people don't, don't come back for a session. And before the conception of this book, it, this came to me because I was consulting with some agencies and they wanted me to help them with the data, uh, look at stuff where we could look at improvement. And w- when I looked at that, it was this figure that came out too. It was about 20 plus percent. And I began to ask the individual clinicians. I said, hey, you know, these names, uh, uh, did you realize like there are people, do you know what happened to them when they didn't come back? And many of them said the same thing. They they don't remember them. And I don't blame them because if if you're a clinician with a heavy caseload, uh, if people don't come back beyond just the initial engagement, you you, it, you don't remember them, right? And if you don't remember them, you won't be able to do anything about them, right? They're out of sight, out of mind, as, as our kids will tell you, uh, because it's not in front of them. And this is a real issue. This is uh, you know, one ex- one story could could illuminate this. Uh Abraham Walt, he, he was a mathematician in the World War II. He was tasked that uh he wanted he, the, the the Air Force wanted him to figure out how to uh increase the airplanes uh, robustness and, and and attacks from from um, bullet fires and bombs and whatnot attacking the planes and they brought him all the planes and sh- showed them all the rates rates of hit around the planes and he said the the way to protect the planes are not the planes that you have brought back the way that we need to protect the planes are those that the planes that are not there Those are the things that we need to protect. And and sometimes this is called survivorship bias. Because of survivorship bias, we don't see the data on an aggregated level as well. And again, out of sight, out of mind. So I think it's really important because think about this for a second, right? If, If you or your listeners have ever gone to see a helping professional for the first time, think about the leader. Think about what it was like in the waiting room. Think about what it's like when you finally meet this person and you're talking about stuff right? Think about the anxiety, the stirrings of complex emotions that goes on. When I was writing this book, uh, I used to go to this particular cafe called Blend. I would go there and I, you know, on certain on, uh, days I would sit there and as I was typing away, trying to figure out a structure for the book, one guy with his father-in-law, uh, he was telling his father-in-law about his, his therapy session. So, the father-in-law says, so how's it go? How did it go? You know, like, and he said, I don't get it. I paid 180 bucks for this lady to ask me questions. And she she said at the end of it, see you next week. So we have to start to rethink about what it is like from the client's perspective. I know this sounds duh, right? It's kind of like a given, but I think we need to think slowly and carefully about this and focus less about what we are taking and more about what we are giving what we are gifting and how it's received
0: as you were talking about that one thing that stood out to me was your mentioning of the people that we forget of the clients that came in once or twice and then the habit of us as clinicians to forget them and that that in and of itself that if we are not connecting with them if we as clinicians aren't forming a connection enough where that person becomes real and um living and breathing and flavored Hmm. if you will if we can't remember them then it almost implies an inherent lack of connection
1: that's right however this this we got to see this contextually because think about the reason how come We might not be able to remember them. And I don't think this is the fault or the lack of empathy on the therapist's part. Most of the time, it's, and, and more so, especially in this era that we're speaking in, Beth, like it's because of the context that we're in. Most of us are super packed and busy. You know, we, we, we're flying off our our, our our seats just to do what we need to do. And business, the tyranny of business, is, is one that will zap our attention and our ability to slow down.
0: Yeah, I absolutely. And so as we're recording this, we're in March of 2022. So we're solidly in over two years of a pandemic, knowing that we're in a mental health crisis around the world. And every clinician I know hasn't been taking new clients for months, every agency I know, because there are just so many people needing care. And and you're right, it's not for, uh, I don't think it's for lack of care or lack of empathy. It's for the construct and the paradigm of mental health care that we don't necessarily either have the time or the ability to have this deep connection, especially when we feel like, we need to fill out this long form and ask all these questions, like you reference, where it's like I spent one hundred and eighty dollars and I went to this session. I just answered a lot of questions and I didn't get anything yeah. out of it.
1: Yeah, and you know, on top of that, in, in in this time of the recording too, you know, besides the pandemic, we are layered also with the political unrest, the war that's going on. You know, these things, you know, they all seeped into the water and the air that we we breathe. You know, and and they're part of this that that makes things a little bit more on edge for everyone, including clinicians.
0: For good or for ill. (laughs) So when we're thinking about this initial appointment, this initial contact with somebody, I'm curious. So in the United States, at a private practice or group practice level, it's not uncommon to have contact with somebody before the session. So it's pretty common practice in private practice for A client to have like a free 10 or 20 minute phone call before they set a session it's not required but it's common i'm curious is that common in australia as well or is it more like a doctor where you just set up the appointment and show up
1: yeah at a certain time
0: without that practice dependent
1: We, we we don't have this uh Lesser than in the US, as far as I know, uh, of this free initial concept where it's a quick kind of get to know you, and and before the actual session, we we have less of that. Mainly because a lot of the referrals in Australia uh, they come via the f- uh, family physicians, the the general practitioners who get a mental care plan and they refer to either the private practice or the group practice. But of course, we we also have. Um, all the barrage of intake forms and all that that we need to do. But you see more of the layers of paperwork uh, in in uh, gov- governmental sectors, uh, non-private sectors that that require a lot of things for, um, excuse the language, but as covering kind of work.
0: Yeah, and, and certainly I've always thought it funny when I have these conversations with folks who are coming from feedback-informed treatment because – my listeners know I'm like all about the clinical documentation and the CYA of managed care and liability reduction. And it's interesting for me as a clinician to kind of straddle these two worlds. So I have this part of me that's training about utilization review and making sure that we're, we're crossing our T's and dotting our I's and that our, our, uh, our documentation is robust enough to protect the client and protect ourselves and potentially serve for third-party payers. And then simultaneously focusing in feedback informed treatment on making sure we're talking about the relationship. And it's just so delicate. And that's why I appreciate the language. Yeah. the, The language in your book about the first kiss, because when I, when I heard that, like it really gave me pause because it really is like this pivotal make or break moment, just like a first kiss. It's like, you can have all this buildup about what's about to happen. But if there's no like good, happy juju that happens, you know, yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> and it has very real consequences. So, so why don't you take a minute and share some of the research about um, the consequence of a bad first kiss, if you will. So when we when we have a mismatch between client and therapist, when there are missed moments of connection, what does that mean for uh, dropping out, for rates of success for uh, the therapy? Yeah.
1: Before going into that, I just, as you were talking, you gave me this idea for a second edition publication of the book. Uh, design the book cover. Maybe maybe you should have two persons who who are gonna smooch, but they're having a little mask, you know, in between or something. But anyway,
0: <laughs> layers of interpretation on that one.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, the, the, the research oh, is man. clear that it's 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 as I mentioned. Uh, there, there anything between 20 to 30 percent as a baseline that that happens uh and sometimes even more for some people it's less which is great if if the figures are, are lesser for you if if you don't know maybe it's a good thing to track amongst um, some of the metrics that you want to know what's really happening on a slightly zoom up level on an aggregated level of your caseload but also the the, the cost on the system right that I, I don't know how we could calculate this economically, but if a person actually takes the effort to come for the first session and not seek help, it's not just a cost economically on the organization or on the person's wallet, but it's also on the faith and confidence of the of seeking help. I mean, the, the, that step to come for some, it's nerve wracking. It's hard to even come to that point for others. It's easy, but to be disappointed it's it's quite another thing to be able to pick yourself up and go, you know what, maybe this is practitioner dependent. I, I'm going to try someone else. I'm going to bet my money again and, and go see someone else. That takes uh, a bit of recovery on the person's part. And my view is that we shouldn't be burdening people on that. We should do our best to see if we can focus on how to not so much give them fast food serving and go, here's the thing that will solve all your solution in one go in the first session. I, I don't mean that, but I mean in a way a, a f- true understanding of human development that they do require this first step and anything to help them engage, anything to help them feel like they're on the right direction, uh, it's going to be potent.
0: I remember in reading the studies just how kind of stark it was that when a client only attends session with a therapist one or two times and and they don't stay. they drop out their likelihood of seeing another therapist or achieving relief for their symptoms goes down dramatically. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really discouraging. you know for clinicians like no pressure. Yeah. Um, but I but and, and and admittedly, like you are already feeling pressured and and I think we can all remember our very first session. I know I can. It's vivid in my mind of how it yeah. felt to have somebody come see me and think that I am going to help them and the imposter syndrome and all of that that was yeah. going on. And then simultaneously having my clipboard and a pen and filling out all this paperwork. Yeah, how, how do we do that, Dr. Chow? How do we fix this and make this work? Well,
1: since you call me Dr. Chow, I have to straighten my back and give you a research answer now. Mm-hmm.
0: No. <laughs> Indeed. Well,
1: let me give you a personal response to that. Uh, when I was a about 15 or 16, I was not in a good place. And uh, I didn't quite know what was going on in my mental health, in my inner life per se. And I used to skip school. I I was attending uh, what in Singapore called a polytechnic situation where where I was attending business administration school and it was totally not for me. I almost earned my, my PhD then or what we call poly halfway dropout. I was skipping school. I was running away to this place in City Hall nearly every other day by myself. And I was just wandering the streets of City Hall. And I used to go to this uh church there you know i, I was I, I i didn't subscribe to any religion at that time and i would just go there i would be sitting there in the quiet and the background noise of the street traffic's just far away and this place was a haven but i kept going there weeks week after week and and i i could feel this kind of um, unrest that, that i was experiencing i was not doing well emotionally so i went to the office in there and i, I knocked on the door and i said Strangely enough, I just said, can I speak to someone, you know? And this man, elderly man, French guy, uh, he said, come in. And I sat there and Father Claude, is his name Claude Berito, has he, since passed away, but he invites me. I sit on next to his table and he's got one of those wooden table with a glass top uh, across the table to overlay some pictures that he kept, uh, some memorabilia that he had. And he looked at me and he greeted me and I said, hello. And for the next 30 minutes, uh, I had nothing to say. I had no words coming out of my mouth. And the thing he said to me was, he said, if I remember correctly, he said something about, it's okay, you don't have to say anything um, whenever you're ready, no pressure at all. And then I ended up talking to him about, paintings on his wall and everything else, because I was crying by then for, for some reason that I couldn't explain at that time. And he didn't probe, he didn't you know do anything to, he didn't have paperwork to fill out, he didn't have anything to to sort out. But it was profound for me, like even till today, right? I'm 43 right now, more than 20 years later. I remember this moment really vividly and it was the seed of my ongoing work with him for the next seven years after and this book was dedicated to him at the front because he was not informed by fear he was informed by his intent when we have to deal with a lot of ethical considerations we have to understand ethics is about common good it's not about covering ass although especially when you first start off you would really feel worried like oh you got to get a consent form you got to get this done and Like it or not, what happens to the practitioner and to the clinician is we are informed by fear, not by our intent. And, you know, listeners won't know this, but you did a beautiful thing, Beth. When we started off the interview, you asked me to just stay close to my intent of what I wanted for today in our call, right? And you did the same. I I love that because it just zeroes in to come back full circles. What are we doing Like, why are we in this profession to begin with?
0: Uh, I wrote that down. Uh, When we are informed by fear, not intent. There was such a challenge there, Daryl. I think so much much of our licensing exams are about fear, about law and ethics, about making sure we're doing the right thing. And the consequence, the consequence for 16-year-old you would have been to lose you. Or at least have increased the probability that if you had sat down and the person had said, "So where did you grow up? And tell me about your family yeah, exactly. life. And do you have any school trauma? Yeah. Um, and it's and that's that's a really hard balance to strike, and it's one that I certainly struggle
1: with. And you know um, when I you know I don't often tell this story, so so it's not in the book as well, but. When I do workshops on this topic, uh, I have some people who said, but you know what? This guy didn't have um, licensing issues to, to deal with and, and, and all that, You know, he's got, a, he's got no paperwork to fill out on the intake and all that. But the point I'm bringing out is why is that then? I think we do have to do the right thing, right? We have to worry about doing the right thing, but we, we, we end up focusing about uh, doing things right instead of doing the right thing if that makes sense, because we end up needing to yeah, to, to do all of those stuff and we just need to return one more time closer to the intent and yeah, still find a way to do that, but those become not the priority. Those become the, yeah, we got to do them, but let's kind of stay close to the human experience for the person first and we'll figure out a way. Do we have to do all of those paperwork in the first initial right. meeting can it be done in another way is there a, a HIPAA compliant e-form kind of way that they could do it as well instead of sitting down them and interviewing you know these days when I meet people for the first time in my practice I, I make it clear to them I will ask you a couple of questions but the last thing I want you to feel is an, inter- like it's an interrogation because No, some of the questions, you you might have answers to them. And some of the questions are just for you and me to think about because the questions put us on a quest, uh, a direction of where we're going.
0: I am already anticipating um, (laughs) clinicians like myself. So I came out of the gate in county contract work. So what that means in the United States is that you are – suffering under an extraordinary caseload with very limited time, a ton of paperwork, oh, wow. generally very little training and oversight and guidance and mentorship. And you kind of thrown to the wolves, <laughs> so to speak. And my goodness, like, I mean, I, I, I distinctly remember having occasions where I curled up under my desk in a fetal position and rocked back yeah. and forth <laughs> because You're I was overwhelmed. so overwhelmed by the paperwork. And and in fact that's actually how I started becoming a clinical documentation trainer was because I had this moment where it's like I have to figure out how to do this. And how to survive in this environment when I have to answer to Medi-Cal or to Blue Shield of California or to Anthem Blue Cross or whoever the payer the payer is. And I also need to sit in the room with this person and not just interrogate them. You know, and, and in that environment, very high acuity, it was a residential yeah. environment. So I was working with young adults and adolescents who had been through things that I can't even imagine. And have also had to tell their story so many times at the point that I see them as if they're not sick of telling their story about the worst things that have happened to them. So having to balance how do I do the paperwork and get that done and then also like hold space. And so I know as as we're talking about this, that there are listeners going, well, this is great. This is perfect world. Great. I'm not in a perfect world. You know, I don't exist in that paradigm, and so I want to say to you, listeners: I see mm-hmm. you. I know it. Believe me. Beth, I, know. I have to
1: ask you then, uh, like, like, how did you started to figure it out, straddling these tools of the clinical documentation and the human side of engagement?
0: I, you know, I had part of it was I had a really good supervisor mm-hmm. that had created a very simple assessment. And it relied heavily on the client's narrative, if you could get to that. And what I appreciated, and so again, again this was a residential based yep. environment. But so what I appreciated about my supervisor was that um, he would go in and he was actually the psychologist that would meet with them and would help on like their individualized education plan, for example. And then I would go in as the therapist and meet with the family and work with the client weekly. So we were both doing assessments and. And my supervisor was kind enough to share that paperwork with me. But one of the things that I learned from him to do was to walk in with a paperwork and very often set it down to put it down on the coffee table next mm. to me or to slip it in, in the uh, next to the armrest on the couch in this very deliberate act of like, I will get to this uh. right now. How are you doing? And it was this kind of intention setting that it was like, yes, that's there. We need to do all of that crap. <laughs> and right now I'm just going to sit here human to human with you and try, try to see you. And maybe if we see each other, you'll come to understand something about me and I'll come to understand something about you and we can have a conversation and I can see if I can be of any service. Um, but it was absolutely not to lead with, okay. Cause like, I have been there. (laughs) I have been there when you go into a doctor's appointment or a therapy intake or whatever else. And the person is just staring at a computer screen and they don't make eye contact. And they're they're like, so your parents, right. Exactly. Your parents separated or married or blah, 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 blah. And like living deceased diseases, like cause of illness, you know, like all this stuff. And it doesn't feel good. And can I actually, and I think this is a relevant story. So I, um, One time had that intake myself where I was patient and the person who was a fellow clinician, a psychologist, never even introduced herself and like came out to greet me at the waiting room, brought me back to her office, said, have a seat, and then just started asking all these questions. And at the end of it, I said, you know, I know you need all of this information. I really would have liked to have known your name. And it just like hung in the air. Wow. Wow. Because I didn't even know her name, but she could recite to me these traumas from my adolescence, you know, and, and it was such a, it was a meaningful moment for me, I'm guessing it was a meaningful moment for her as a clinician where it's like, yes, you're and this person's job was just an intake. So this, the construct of that organization was that one person does the intake, quote, unquote, and you and I will get to the, you know, what the word yeah. intake means. And then they hand off that clinical to data to, the to the therapist. Um, but it also was, if I were not in the field, and if I were not aware of the um, bureaucracy that that clinician was operating in, no way I would have been back. <laughs> No way! Exactly. Because even though she was collecting raw yeah. data and wanting information, historical uh, details, I didn't even know her. Didn't
1: name. even know her name. I hope she does, but you know, it's, it's again no no fault of hers. Maybe her role was no. designated as the That's intake, her role. and you you know talk about the research. There is evidence about this where you have. Um, one person doing the intake, farm it off to a person to do the real treatment. After that, and yeah. and and you know, go on. and the the evidence so far is that people who ha- are in that kind of uh, system are two to three times more likely to discontinue the treatment process mm-hmm. when they are farmed out. I think when organizations start to build through this kind of logical sequence all right, let's hire some uh, uh, not full-fledged or provisional psychologists or people who are in training to do the intake, then farm them off to clinicians to, to do the real treatment. It sounds logical, but our world does not operate on this kind of logical rationale. We operate on a psychological realm more than logic because yeah. the moment when you have to spill the beans to someone else and then get farmed off to see someone else, you feel like you got to start all over again right and in, information Absolutely. is not transformation you can have a lot of information and nothing happens and paul slavic in 1974 uh, he, he was a peer of danny kahneman most people would know about kahneman's work from his book thinking fast and slow with amos Tversky. but he was a peer uh, paul slavic and and he found that uh, he, he asked uh, people who are betting on races to ask what information that they want about the horse before they put the bet to make a good bet and the more information that they get their confidence increase right naturally so but it comes to a point where the confidence keeps go- increasing when they have more information but they do not become more accurate in their prediction so information is not transformation. There is a sweet spot. There's a good enough place or or Herbert Simon calls this satisficing, a a middle ground where you do need to know a little bit before you could do some work. But the moment where we go, we need a thorough formulation, the four piece of everything about this person and all that before we can do anything. I think that's misguided.
0: I agree. (laughs) I would love to argue with that, but I agree. And, um, (laughs) it it is a pickle that clinicians find themselves in. I think for me in my role, which I've worked with dozens of companies across the country on their intake paperwork. And it's hard because one of my experiences, like I've had the honor and the opportunity to talk with clinicians with all different specializations. And the reality is that like, I know a clinician, for example, that uh, specializes in traumatic brain yep. injury. <laughs> Wouldn't you bet that her assessments cover things that I have never ever thought right. about? <laughs> and then, and then, when I'm thinking about intake paperwork that I'm helping create for a residential treatment center, then I'm remembering her in the back of my mind, and it's then it's really tempting to include twelve questions about any time that you had a head injury and, you know, like to go down this rabbit hole, which is unequivocally important, um, but it also is not necessarily my rabbit hole to go down. And, and it's also contextual. So so how thorough an assessment is, if you're looking at a psychiatric hospitalization or a residential level of care versus outpatient, right too, right? They're, they're requesting and demanding different things. And so what I expect of an outpatient clinician, and, I, and I'm speaking right now as an auditor, and I should note that like not as a fit trainer or anything yeah. like that. But as somebody who's audited outpatient paperwork versus auditing residential or psychiatric hospitalization, my uh, my spectacles are different. I'm wearing different glasses when I'm looking at that, because one is predominantly a medical service if we're looking at residential and, psych- and psychiatric. Yeah. But if we're looking at outpatient, we're looking at what you're talking about which and i guess i should say that the first kiss exists at every level of care <laughs> so let me just qualify that but for the for the purpose of today's conversation we're talking about that that first session between client well prospective client mm-hmm. i should say and prospective clinician yep. and then what do we do as clinicians to improve the likelihood that that person is going to walk away feeling like they got something out of it, knowing that the research shows that if the person comes for a few sessions, and doesn't feel like they're getting anything out of it has no measure to say, I'm getting better, or I'm getting worse or anything else, that they're much more likely to drop out. Again, the pressure's on us. And so it's like, what do we need to do differently to to, I, I want to say ensure, but to do our best to uh, influence the likelihood of a positive outcome in those first few sessions when they're so critical to whether or not this person is going to get better.
1: Absolutely. I think for your listeners, if they did not pick this up earlier from what you said, Beth, I think it is worth highlighting your example that you gave about what you learned from your supervisor when you first started the work about putting it one side – you know, you were gesturing to the side table or putting between the chair and the armrest. To me, that's such a powerful psychological signal for yourself, maybe also for the client. But I think that gesture reminds you to go closer to your intent again. That, yeah, the, we, we got to sort that out, But but it's not the priority. Our biggest thing that we need to do is have the ability to protect our priority. That's so important because if we don't, then we will get muddled. There's there's so many things that we do need to do for, for good reasons often, but we do need to figure out not the four Ps. We need to figure out what's the one priority, what's the one P for this person at this time, whether or not he or she's keen for the treatment, whether or not uh, is this going to be ongoing work. It doesn't matter. We still need to figure a way to meet them eye to eye.
0: You know, as you're saying... That example, and, and you're right, obviously, the listeners can't see me, see me. But so yeah, gesturing, taking my notepad. And and when I was using a notepad to actually fold it up to take my folio and fold it and set it down on a coffee table to my side. What's interesting is like going back to kind of exploring this idea of first kiss and really building mm-hmm. this out. Part of a really good first kiss is also the framing and that the physical positioning isn't awkward. So I'm thinking about that example where I was the client, patient, participant, whatever word you want to use. And that even the framing, that this was a person sitting behind a desk. So there's uh-huh. this huge, very heavy obstacle between me and that yeah. clinician. Then there's also a computer screen and I see a face kind of bend out to the side every once in a while and pop back in behind the computer screen. And like that would not be a perfect circumstance for a first kiss. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I've had these conversations with with um, treatment centers about like, what is even the physical arrangement of folks when you're meeting with Excellent. somebody are there coffee tables in between you and for me i actually am sitting in my office right now and daryl you reflect there is no coffee table. <laughs> um, it is a chair and it, it is there's no coffee table and uh thank you and um and what i do have is actually a little a little side table that i will put my folio on and maybe a water bottle things like that in those good old days when we're in, in person with folks um, but that all of these constructs All of these moments send this message to a prospective client about how engaged we are and whether or not, as I see it, the measurement oftentimes in feedback-informed treatment to boil it down, and I welcome your disagreement because this is far more your area of expertise than mine, is basically, as a clinician, do moments bring us closer together with a client further apart or about the same? Is it neutral? And when something happens between the client and therapist where they are further apart, then hopefully there's the opportunity for a repair to come back closer together. But so to think of the intake, uh, you know, quote unquote intake, the assessment session, these first few sessions as the um, uh, blocking, if you will, the stage blocking of the perfect first kiss. And that it even means thinking about how am I physically in relation to this person? Is my body facing theirs? Um, and that, that makes a different a difference. I mean, I remember seeing research about whether or not our feet are facing somebody in conversation is yeah. an indicator of how we are. Oh, is of these it pointing at a duel? And I'm, I'm right. Exactly. And so, and I'm sure clinicians, some are listening going, oh my God, there's so many things I have to think of, but it's like, but to remember, like, what does it, what does it mean to be a human in the room with somebody and to actually be a good listener? Like. That's what we're, I think, fundamentally really talking about. Like, how do we set the stage to be a good listener and to be engaged and to be um, investing in connection? You know, and now disagree with me.
1: (laughs) I I don't disagree because, I mean, when we talk about, I mean, the, the, a couple of things to unpack from what you said it's really important because the 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 thing about the use let's say of outcome measures for me they are not an assessment tool they are conversational tools they they are the same thing for why a physician will have a stethoscope a blood pressure machine and you know and all those devices it's it's really part of the treatment It's not a augmentation or an additive, like extra thing, it is part of the treatment. So I see it that way. Secondly, you know, the idea about the table, I mean, that's spot on. When you have those physical things, it sends this kind of signal. But if you subvert those norms let's say if you were in a setting where it's like a table in front of the client it's like an interview like a consult if you subvert that and you actually go i'm going to sit somewhere that's a little bit more equalizing it sends a very powerful signal to the client as well as you were speaking just now, as well, an image of, um, I think, Northern American listeners would know this about Fred Rogers, um, the TV personnel who did kids' shows, right? And if you have not heard or seen him, you know, just Google him on YouTube or something and just watch his eyes. And when kids come up to him to talk to him, his eyes are transfixed on that one person that's in front of him. Everything else fades, right? And it's intentional because that's his principle. That's his philosophy of life. The most important person is the person in front of me. Everything else fades for him and he just focuses on that. And you could see the impact of children, very young kids, when they're in the presence of Fred Rogers.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I love that example. Um it's so disarming and to watch him engage and the way the kids just flourish Damn. and are just so excited to tell their stories and and also he was so deliberate in like and he was very deliberate in being aware of the power differential. And so you'd see him kneel. That's right,
1: he would go down, um, yeah.
0: And yeah. And and all of those moments, I think they're really beautiful examples of those, I guess of the transactional analysis between client and therapist and how do we meet adult to adult instead of parent to child where there's this really strong power differential where we are the expert, let me adjust my glasses. Um, And that the research kind of, I think (laughs) the anti-establishment part of me, it's a little rebel. I think that's what I love about fit. And I think those of us who are drawn to it have that, Um, same affection of like, it takes a lot of the stuff that we think we know, and it turns it on its head. (laughs) It's like, wait, that's actually not what healing is. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned um, the importance of intent, when you are having an initial assessment, quote, unquote, what is your intent if you were to define it?
1: Yeah, when i i think about it in 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 this way i think about three things on a macro level I'm, i'm always thinking about intention attention and repetition to me these three things of intention attention and repetition are what forms in in my head at least constitute a ritual intention attention and uh, repetition to, to do this in a way with different people and I do this intentionally right and my attention is devoted in that hour to that person and for me it's a ritual because this therapy hour it's, it's a healing ritual of sorts we meet each other we say hello hopefully we get to know each other's names and then we, we figure out what's going on and talk a little bit about stuff and then we go a little bit deeper and we explore certain things and Maybe some things are too difficult to explore. That's okay. We put it one side, and hopefully, I want them to have a. I don't want them to have just new inputs. I I, I really want them to have a new experience, right? A, a human experience in this case with with me, and that's about it. And maybe at the end of it, I might provide certain. Um, rough north compass, like where, where we might go, what are some things we might touch upon. Sometimes I might even give very clear tasks or, or things that I can do in between. Sometimes I might give them little um, words to think about, uh, symbols to represent where they are at, uh, which some of the examples we gave in, in the f- first case book. And and that's usually my intent. But then on a, on a cl- when I'm thinking about it from a clinical standpoint, I have, um, again, another three things that are in my head. And they constitute what a person will say, won't say, and can't say. Will say, won't say, can't say. So I'm thinking about what they will say, right? The, the, the stuff that they're willing to, to to disclose and talk about, or maybe even planfully that they have intent on talking about their relationship troubles or they have issues with uh, anxiety and so on. But I also want to listen to what they won't say. What I mean by that is the stuff that may be imbued by shame, uh, have difficulties articulating things that are not norm to just speak about. I I want to attune to those stuff. And then finally, the can't say, to me, is the shorthand for remembering what does it say about them, the story that they are caring, that they... They have real difficulties acknowledging. I'll give you an example. I know, one, one person came to see me uh, that was quite obvious. It was about some sort of um, uh, obsessive compulsive behavior, right? So that's the will say. The, 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 the won't say it's about the level of shame and, and difficulty about how this person needs to keep repeating certain actions, counting certain magical numbers in their head. But then the, the, the third level, the will say, won't, won't say, and can't say, the deep level is this person feels like she was a bad person. She feels like she's a bad person, right? There is, it's, it's almost like, what, what do you mean? Like, how does this make sense? But she carries this hyper responsibility that if she does not do something right, something bad would happen to other people. And she does not want to be a bad person. So I want to listen for all these layers and I might not get to that in the first session and that's okay, you know, I'm not going to be digging like an archaeologist because I'm not. I just want to pay attention to these layers. Now, they are not a formula, they are just little heuristics that I have um, in my head. But more recently, and this is not in the book, um, I, I realized that we're... You know, you you are you are good at this area, of clinical documentation. But I've been thinking a lot about case notes, right? What's it for? Who's it for? All those fundamental questions of case noting, and I realized that when I look back all my years of writing thousands of case notes, that there were timely case notes and there were timeless case notes. So what I mean by that is there's always certain information that remain perennial, remain timeless, that are always gonna be like necessary information that's gonna help me in my work. So I sat down and I thought, let's kind of think through this carefully. What, what are these stuff that I seem to repeat or oh, I flick through the case notes always to look for these informations again and again and again. Mm. And then why can't I just create a case note that is not time-bound, like sequentially time-bound, and go like this is perennial, this is timeless. So what what I came out was there were four domains that I seem to always need those information. Again, it doesn't have to be all in the first session, but they were they were things that were powerful. They were client factors. So the four things were one, uh, and just for my own easy reference, they they were called the four S's. So the first S was systemic i want to know the relationships that they're in the people they care about and the people that care for them if they have enemies (laughs) if they were part of the reason why they were in treatment i want to know them i want to know uh how they address their grandma do they call nonna do they call grandma do they call popo you know i want to know those native language of how they address people they care about because that speaks on an emotional level; it's not just an intellectual exercise. And there's a lot of relevance to this too, because it comes into the therapeutic frame of how I would work. Second, S, I want to know um, uh, sparks. So sparks are things that they they really enjoy. They go into flow states. Uh, um, Uh, It could be things that they really care about, uh, uh, things that they have an activistic mindset about, all those things that make them come alive. Why I I have this down as perennial? Because these client factors, as we know from the zoomed out literature, accounts for about 80 to 87% of outcomes. If I can tap into them, uh, it's a huge deal and it's very idiosyncratic to each person. So I don't know what they care about. That's the sparks. Then... um, Significant events. So as most therapists are trauma-informed, significant events are about painful events, but they're not it. Those things constitute significant events. I wanna know. I wanna know things that have happened that they constitute a significant, that were painful even. But also on the flip side, I wanna know transformative moments. I wanna know, what someone said to them that really surprised them, that still stayed with them, things that happened in their life, maybe surrender pittously, uh, happenstance that sort of turned their life around that was pivotal. Like for me, meeting Father Claude was pivotal and probably instrumental to why I end up in the healing profession. I wanna know these things. And then finally, the last S um, is a sense of self. So like the lady that I mentioned briefly uh, dealing with the OCD, Her sense of self is uh, uh, not just guilt, but she carried carried a lot of moral responsibility for other people. And she didn't want to be a bad person. She wants to do good, right? She wants to be able to bring uh, 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 life-givingness to the people that she, she cares about, but she's plagued with this kind of wrongdoing and magical ideation that she can cause harm to other people. So sense of self, you could think about, you could use... you know, the big five personality traits. So think about that. Or you could use other kinds of attachment theories about avoidance and anxious states, you know, just to think about how would you conceive their personhood, right? And it's not fixed, right? Personalities are not fixed. They change over time, as we know of more recent literature. But it's also not monolithic. It's not just one sense of self. There are many selves, as you might know from internal family systems, just thinking about conflicted parts of their sense of self, what, what different parts do they have about how they see themselves, the stories that they, care, they carry. So these four usually just guide me and, you know, they, they often help me to have a clearer picture of the person. And, and when things get busy, if I suddenly forget who John Smith is, you know, this is the go-to that I look to uh, remember mm. to remember. <laughs>
0: Thank you. I feel like that in and of itself is his own hour-long interview. But just to to restate what Daryl just shared, so for him, those four perennial client factors to just restate them so that they store in your memory a little bit better are a systemic sparks. So those are the things that someone is really passionate about, significant events, and also their sense of self. And so in doing that, Daryl, it sounds like that's that's your way of really not just for documentation, but truly honing in on who this person is basically capturing their humanity
1: that's right so that goes back one full circle to what you said that's my intent and it also gets the job done to make sure that i have enough information to uh that if if somebody picks it up and and looks at my case note and if i die for whatever reason suddenly uh somebody can look it at it oh yeah okay great this is, i got a sense of this person too
0: You have talked about already, you touched upon the idea of giving more than what we take. You also, um, we've talked privately about the importance of clinician vulnerability. Hmm. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because Hmm. the construct of therapy, (laughs) like talk about invasive, Hmm. um, particularly for for so, so much of at least Western culture we're steeped in the importance of a stiff upper lip, quote unquote, many different cultural factors saying we don't talk about problems. We don't talk about that. We don't be weak, all of these different things that these messages we've gotten. And so then it's like, oh, I'm going to go sit down and talk with somebody. And Tell them all of my deepest secrets. Huh? <laughs> um, so <laughs> h- how do you see vulnerability? What does vulnerability like look like for you as a clinician to create a safe space for it in the client and also to show vulnerability yourself as a clinician?
1: Wow. So one of the things that I mentioned in the book uh, as, a, as a guide, that if you're expecting your clients to be vulnerable with you, then... Be vulnerable first. And I don't mean tell all your wounds and all your problems, but I mean, (laughs) introduce yourself, right? Give a little bit of a short spiel about yourself. If they have not checked you out on on your online platforms or your website, say something about yourself. It's like you said, it's disarming. There there was a a researcher and her surname was Moon. I remember her surname as Moon. Uh, She did a study of... Um, computers, robots, in this case, asking students information, and she she was trying to study how much people are willing to be vulnerable in disclosing to a robot, right, a computer, and and she would just get the robot to have uh, um, bot automated responses, and then say, "Tell me your name. What was the difficulty you faced at this age? Blah blah blah," and ask and ask. And then she would gather all the information and she would quantify them in terms of its load of information. Then she had an experimental group where the robot this time, instead of just asking the questions, the robot would tell about itself. (laughs) The robot would say, you know, I have a hard time defragmenting the information. And sometimes I have a glitch, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then the robot goes on to ask the question. And she found the sheer act of a bot doing that increased the rate of people's willingness to be more vulnerable. Can you imagine that? A robot doing that already can create that? What more of a real human?
0: That's amazing. I'm really glad you just shared that anecdote. What interesting research. Um, I think I think particularly for new clinicians, and, and I've acted in a supervis- supervisorial no. role before, um... For new clinicians, it's feeling like you need to have all of the answers and you need to know exactly which intervention you're going to use and that it's on page 374 of that one manualized treatment that you did six weeks ago <laughs> and you got trained in in that cold conference room. Um, and it's so much pressure. And, and I continually, in reading First Kiss and in talking with you, I think it's just refreshingly simple to go back to... These moments of what it means to just simply exist in connection with somebody, totally, and it, and and in witness of somebody as well, and and at least for me, what an honored position that is. Like it, it just right. continues to amaze me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. And and it's it's really just so simple. So if we do those things that you're suggesting, if we focus in on these important client factors and we make these really deliberate moves in the beginning about our priority letting it be known to the client and to ourselves that i am here to i guess bear witness to you to be in connection with you to 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 sit in this space yeah that f- it's not saying, I, I think it would be easy to listen to this and be like, okay, well, then I don't need to do paperwork. And then the, the documentation <laughs> professionals like, no, 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 don't, don't mishear this. Um, but that it's to strike a balance, and to put down your pen long enough to just simply hold space in the room or on the phone or virtually or wherever it is with somebody. And that, I mean, I'm I'm trying to think for myself having done Ugh. hundreds of assessments over the years, if not thousands, um, probably thousands. Um, I'm trying to think if I've ever not been able to get the information that I've needed. And by and large, I, I honestly, I can't think of any where I've been missing information for utilization review or for clinical documentation. Um, and granted, uh, certainly, I think what you're talking about is an art form. There's such an art to this of how, how <laughs> you, you think it's really simple, but an art to balance being with somebody and also completing paperwork. Um, but that I think, if we go back to the basics, and let it flow organically, instead of with some formula, then it I, I even talk about it with clients as like kind of this pain in the ass thing I have to do, where it's like, I have to ask you these questions. And so I'm going to, I might, I'd love to hear your story. I might ask you a few questions about that and we're not going to cover everything today. But so it's like just saying, I please don't feel like you have to come in here and just spew out all this information. And then in 79 minutes, it's time for you to leave. Um, and then we'll do it again next week. Um, I, I think removing that pressure and that's, I, I'm glad for clinicians like you who are having these conversations and thinking deeply about it so much that you look up the research, like what you just said about the robot, because I think we need to hear that as clinicians, because there's so much pressure on those first few sessions. And I think what you're presenting is refreshingly simple.
1: Thanks. Yeah. And I think, if anything, my hopes for the book was not to prov- provide a formula, but just a kind of form, a scaffold that people could start to rethink about, okay, how are they going to structure the, the ritual of the first engagement and what what can go, what's, what will satisfy, not maximize, but you know and maybe we can cover everything that's okay you know and any kind of audit will know that you thought about that and you put it there to continue to access further that's fine you know that's all part of uh, ongoing documentation but i think if we can if we can remember that if we keep our eyes open and see for what the person is you you be you need to be responsive and Adapting, right? Because you you may have a typical session that flows very well, but if you keep your eyes open, you could see that this client is in a different state. Maybe he he may look like um he's really tense, right? And he's really tense and he's just giving you all the information and just blabbering out, yep, and it just go on and on. But if your eyes are open, your ears are open, you realize this person's really anxious. Right. If this person's really anxious, then stop. Then go. Do you notice what's happening right now? You look like a deep sea diver to me right now. Are you holding your breath? Like, and then as soon as you do something of that levity, uh, uh, you know it can be again disarming, and the person may sigh or relieve. Like, oh, and you could check in, like, how are you feeling in the body? What's it like even coming here today? What when you're sitting in the waiting room? What was running through your mind? You know, those things are important, especially if the person's. Sh- Showing to you, if your eyes are open, your ears are open, that if they are feeling a certain way, then don't ignore that.
0: I want to comment on that because I think you just kind of opened up another concept, too, which is the importance of that being part of your assessment. And right. that assessment doesn't only have to include answering these questions that are historical. It can include client presenting with pressured speech. and appeared to not take deep breaths and that that's part of our assessment of a potential issue with
1: anxiety or your impressions Um, yeah
0: and and we are you know you and i joked before we started recording of just like the bureaucracy of healthcare in america and and in the western world (laughs) and the complexity of diagnosis and billing and this patriarchal colonial origin of this whole system and so it's not it's not simple for clinicians to sort through all of this and to make sense of who they are clinically and then how they're going to show up in the room. Um, For clinicians who are listening um, and want to learn more about you and about your work, obviously the first step would be to Go check out First Kiss (laughs) and not the one that looks like a romance novel on the front. Um, It'll be the one by Dr. (laughs) Daryl Chow. (laughs) Um, But, Daryl, why don't you tell our listeners as we wrap things up um, the best way to learn more about you and about your work and about feedback informed treatment and kind of give them the spiel? Because we've just scratched the surface on sure. something that you wrote an entire book about <laughs> and then have done lots more research of things that branch off of it.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the book was was written in a way that I, I really wanted it to be um, bite-sized um, as clear language as possible. I don't know if I achieved that, but that was my intent. So it was not written in a kind of scientific a- academic kind of writing. So yeah. I really wanted it to be, a bit more approachable and something you could revisit every now and then just to um, remember the things that are dear. So the book's available wherever you get books uh, online and all that. Uh, want to know more about um, these stuff? I, I run a, a site called Frontiers of Psychotherapist Development. If you just go to com, that's my name d-r-y-l-c-h-o-w.com and slash frontiers you, you see Um, an archive of information covering things about deliberate practice, feedback and form stuff that Beth, you've mentioned about uh, first sessions as well, about what it means to become a deep learner and all that. But there's also a particular blog that was, um, I think it should be out for when listeners hear this. It's called darylchow.com slash frontiers and slash 4S. So, that's where we talked about those 4S. Mm. Uh, there's going to be a little template that people could just use that to aid the memory of, of if that makes sense to them, they could use this to, to guide them in their work. Um, yeah, so the blog site, we, we have a, a not-so-frequent podcast uh, tagged with Frontis Radio as well um, for, for stuff that we're talking about.
0: Fantastic. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Chow. It's always wonderful to spend time with well, you. Well, I like your
1: questions. You make this really engaging.
0: Uh, well it's it's because I am engaged <laughs> I, I get to talk with people like you and it's just it's like f- constant food for thought so thank you my uh, my appetite has been uh, satisfied <laughs> for now
1: Thanks for what you do and if I could you know uh, again at this time of the recording uh, our thoughts and prayer school with people in Ukraine and also the people in in Russia who are having difficult time standing up to this.
0: Thank you so much. Um, And thank you for that as well. It's um, as much as you and I can laugh and connect, it's also been an extraordinarily hard time. Um, And all all the more poignant it is to get to connect and for us as clinicians to connect with our clients. So thank you for joining us in bringing home that idea of the importance of connection.